So this morning's talk I've called Religionless Christianity in a Secular Age. What matters about the Christianity of our contemplative community? Last night I traced what I called an evolution in our context. I spoke of a shift from the 1970s and 80s when much of the work of the contemplative renewal was to awaken Christians to the significance of meditation for their life and prayer, to our own time when the value of meditation is widely accepted, but the possibility and plausibility of Christian commitment is increasingly in question. And I asked, what does our Christianity add to our contemplative practice? other than what is, for many, a problematic weight of dogmatic and cultural baggage. Why can't we just meditate? Well, this morning I want to begin focusing more directly on this question of the significance of our Christian identity and vocation. But as I emphasised yesterday, my intention is to approach this issue not as signifying or requiring anything like a tribal assertion of ourselves over against others. We Christians, as opposed to you Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims, atheists, secularists, or whatever. And this is not just because I'm a wishy-washy liberal infected by political correctness and unwilling to take a stand for the truth of my faith. It's because, so I believe, this refusal to defend or assert an identity over against others is internal to what being Christian is. And in this talk, I want to expand and explore this claim. Doing so, I hope, will help us get clearer what is and is not involved in a contemplative Christianity, and so open the way to exploring more fully the gift we are to receive and to be. So, a world come of age. In his late prison letters, the great Protestant theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, whom Lawrence mentioned the other day, most of you probably know Bonhoeffer was a German theologian involved in the German resistance to, to Hitler and the Nazis, imprisoned by the Nazis and executed just before the end of the war. And he wrote a series of letters from prison and in these letters, he grappled with the question of what he called the claim by Jesus Christ on a world that has come of age. The year was 1944, and Bonhoeffer was acutely aware even then that, quote, God is being increasingly pushed out of the spheres of knowledge and life. Man, he wrote to his friend Eberhard Bethke, has, le has learnt to deal with himself in all questions of importance without recourse to the working hypothesis called God. 
In questions of science, art and ethics, this has become an understood thing on which one now hardly dares to touch. You might think that God was still necessary in relation to religious questions. But even here, Bonhoeffer considers, quote, it is becoming evident that everything also gets along without God. And in fact, just as well as before. As in the scientific field, so in human affairs generally, God is being pushed more and more out of life, losing more and more ground. Well, Bonhoeffer's reflections on the significance of this development for Christian proclamation and identity are, I think, some of the most original and suggestive we have. And so in this next little section, I want to spend some time exploring these as a way of opening up our questions. Bonhoeffer observed that a natural reaction to everything seeming to get along without the working hypothesis of God is for Christians to seek to shore up belief in a spirit of pushing back the secularizing tide, reclaiming lost territory. This can be attempted in various ways. For example, a conservative approach tends to a direct confrontation with and rejection of secularism, enjoining a return, at least in certain respects, to an idealised and supposedly more faith-filled past. We might think of pre-Vatican II congregations in the Roman Catholic Church, or of the increasingly aggressive Bible-based fundamentalism in some Protestant circles. But even in his day, Bonhoeffer speaks of the futility of this salto mortale, this death leap back into the Middle Ages, which can only be accomplished, he says, at the cost of intellectual honesty and become a council of despair. <coughs> Liberal Christianity pursues a second approach. It tends to be more accommodating to the overall worldview of modernity. It seeks to reassert the relevance of Christianity not by dogmatic fiat, but on the basis of the so-called ultimate questions of human life. And here Bonhoeffer had in mind the influence on some of his contemporaries of existentialist philosophy and the emerging field of psychoanalysis. And drawing on this literature, some theologians were suggesting that there are questions to do with meaning and human significance to which only God can give an answer. The strength of this approach, according to Bonhoeffer, is that it doesn't seek to put the clock back. It too, however, is deeply problematic. For one thing, having surrendered to the secular worldview in relation to all worldly problems, God is increasingly squeezed out of public life into the domain of the private and the psychological. The proclamation of the gospel tends then to be made parasitic on the so-called problems of death, suffering and guilt. 
It depends upon and in some cases actively seeks to persuade people of their lack, sin and meaninglessness. And so smuggles God into human life through the back door of human weakness. Yet there are plenty of answers to existential questions that take no account whatever of God, Bonhoeffer writes. And it is simply not true that only Christianity has a solution for them. You may have had this experience when you tell people they really need God, but they just don't know it yet. And it's like, well... <laughs> Even more significantly, to make the proclamation of the gospel depend on convincing people of their need and lack, their sin and misery, amounts, in his view, to, quote, an attack on the adulthood of the world. It seeks to make us dependent on things on which we are, in fact, no longer dependent and to thrust us into problems that are, in fact, no longer problems to us. There's a kind of manipulation at work here, an ignoble impulse that's antithetical to the God of life. And Bonhoeffer's words make me think of my many non-Christian friends, my beloved non-Christian brothers, all of whom are living thoroughly decent lives, contributing in varied and sometimes deeply sacrificial ways to the common good and the flourishing of the earth, and who simply do not see the relevance of Christianity for themselves or the life of the world. Bonhoeffer is reacting, says Rowan Williams, against a Christian apologetic that when faced with what seems to be a contented and self-sufficient human world, struggles to persuade this world that it has a diseased inner life, a secret and hidden misery. <laughs> Bonhoeffer thinks, Williams and I agree with him, that there's something pernicious and demeaning about this attempted persuasion. And a number of you have spoken to me of your children and your grandchildren and the sense that, you know, they perhaps fall into this category and this idea that somehow there's something wrong that they just don't know, it doesn't sit well, does it, to, to try and persuade by those means. It is, of course, true that Jesus forgave sinners, restored people who were alienated from themselves and healed the sick. But he didn't first have to make everyone a sinner or convince everyone they were ill in order to make his claim on human being. The God of Jesus Christ, says Bonhoeffer, must be recognised at the centre of life, not just when we are at the end of our resources. God wills to be recognised in life and not just when death comes in health and vigour, and not just in suffering, in our activities, and not just in sin. In short then, according to Bonhoeffer, when conservative Christianity seeks to, or attempts to save itself, 
by retreating to a pre-modern worldview and simply asserts its claim to be taken humanly and culturally seriously, it is intellectually dishonest and regressive. When liberal Christianity seeks to smuggle God into some last secret place, exploiting human weakness and fear, then it's performing what he calls clerical tricks unworthy of the gospel. This means, he goes on, we should frankly recognise that the world and people have come of age. The whole movement of science, ethics, art, even religion, is towards living in the world, etsi deus non deretur, as if there were no God. We cannot go back. And if this is indeed true, then what room is there for the God of Jesus Christ? What might being Christian amount to in this world come of age? And how does it matter? Well, I want to come at these questions in the first instance by saying a bit more about the roots of Western secularism. So far, I've used the concept of secularism fairly loosely to refer to the collapse of traditional forms of Christian belief and belonging. But now I'd like to complexify this discussion. I want to suggest that contemporary secularism may be recognised, at least in part, as a fruit of the gospel and a friend to faith. And if we better understand how this is so, it will help clarify and crystallise the questions we really need to grapple with. And in my approach to these matters, I'm much indebted to the work of my friend, theologian James Allison, who's also a friend to our world community. Allison reminds us that a fundamental and persistent feature of Jesus' ministry was his calling into question established distinctions between sacred and profane, between holy and unholy. He deliberately challenged the social and religious sensibilities of those around him by refusing to relate to others and to the law as custom required. Think of his eating with tax collectors and sinners, sinners. his touching the so-called unclean, his healings on the Sabbath, and his freedom with regard to the temple itself. All this proved threatening to the authorities and Jesus was executed on a charge of blasphemy. He died an unclean death, cursed by hanging on a tree, as Galatians has it. Yet God vindicated Jesus and his way. All he taught and lived, his ministry of healing and forgiving, his radical inclusiveness and regard for the legally unsatisfactory. All this 
is owned by God as God's proclamation and practice through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. For the community that witnessed these happenings, there were two profound consequences. One, according to the New Testament, is that sacred profane distinctions maintained by some at the expense of others come increasingly to be subverted or overturned. They begin to be seen as having much more to do with human identity formation and boundary maintenance than with God. We see the slow process of the disciples learning Jesus' new way of relating to God and other people as they're asked to let go the old sacred profane distinctions that have structured their identities and their righteousness up till now. So, for example, Peter learns in his vision of unclean animals presented him to eat in that dream in Acts 10 with the, you know, the sheep that comes down with the animals and the take and eat. He learns that what God has made clean, you must not call profane. And the community grapples time and again with questions of ritual purity in relation to boundary markers like circumcision and the eating of meat sacrificed to idols. And in and through all these struggles, this, surely this can't be right, surely oh, this feels a bit odd, surely this can't be what God's about. In, in and through all these struggles, some fixed sense of religiosity is in the process of collapse. In his letters to various emerging Christian communities, St Paul tries to make available this emerging and radically different understanding. James Allison notes that phrases in St Paul like, everything is permitted but not everything is convenient, or to those who are pure, everything is pure, they can sound, they could be quoted by anybody and sound the rankest of secularizing remarks. And they are. They are all phrases by which St. Paul sought to make the oddity of the unreligion which he was preaching available to people. Do you see that? The, that collapse of this old duality. If this is right, and this is key for us, it means that the proclamation of Jesus' life, death and resurrection is not about the replacement of one set of sacred profane distinctions by another. Different content for the same old excluding judgmental religious platform. As if Jesus is simply offering a new set of rules to get right or practices to conform to and by which we can define each other's goodness and belonging. No, the whole point of the gospel is that the new life 
and community founded in Jesus' name involves the undoing of any form of so-called sacred observance or belonging that works by defining itself against what is deemed profane or impure or by allowing people to establish their righteousness over against the so-called ungodly other. In Christ, there is no longer anything that is, by definition, profane or unclean. No food, no person, no nation or disease. There are instead ways of being, forms of life that are consistent or not with God's merciful and all-embracing love for the world. And the point of Christian life is not to deny, oppose or compete with the life of the world, but to participate in the realisation of life's fullness and gift. The religious act, writes Bonhoeffer, is always something partial. Faith is something whole, involving the whole of one's life. Jesus calls people not to a new religion, but to life. So let me suggest three ways in which I think this analysis helps illuminate our contemporary situation. First, it's the early church's new way of relating to God and human beings that conditions the possibility of what Alison calls benign secularity. In the New Testament, the word saculum refers to the present age, the age we're now in. And Alison says that the concept of the secular, as it's developed in the early Christian centuries, designates this age, this time we're in, as the time in which the good news of God's love the unmasking of the violent, false, sacred may be proclaimed and the transformed shape of human being and belonging gradually lived into. This present age is a time of the collapse of those kinds of religious distinctions. It's a time of coming to recognise the, the all-embracing love of God and of discovering what human life and human community responsive to that reality could actually be. In the Christian vision, therefore, there is no straightforward dualism between this age and the next, or between sacred and profane, or so-called sacred and so-called profane institutions and authorities. The whole world is the object and arena of the transforming love of God. It's where we work out our salvation and participate in the reconciliation of all things. 
Thus, Christians must respect the secular realm, this, the time of this present age, and play their part in it, even as they know that their meaning and significance is ultimately sourced not in their worldly success or influence, but in the life and love of God. Well, obviously enough, the kind of multicultural and religiously plural societies we know and value depend on the existence of this unthreatened secular space and time in which many voices and perspectives are allowed to participate in the shaping of common life, free from fear of religiously authorised violence or enforced conformity. And the key point for our purposes is not only that this kind of secularism poses no real problems for Christianity. In fact, it can be understood historically as a fruit of the early church's freedom in relation to the life of the world. The fundamental unthreatenedness of Christian life. Of course, from the very beginning of the Christian tradition, there was a recurring temptation to revert to or re-establish false sacred norms. There were always those who proposed criteria for religious performance by which believers could assure themselves they were deserving of divine favour and exert control over others, that mechanism of inside and out, belonging and not belonging, doesn't take long to reassert itself. St Paul angrily chastised the newly converted Gentile Christians in Galatia, for example, for falling under the influence of those who taught that observance of aspects of Jewish law, circumcision and dietary separation, were necessary for salvation. Formerly, when you did not know God, he writes to them, you were enslaved by beings that by nature are not gods. How can you want to be enslaved to them again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid that my work for you may have been wasted. But it's as though the Galatians dare not believe they can let all this stuff go. And the history of Christianity is replete with examples of this kind, this reversion to false and oppressive forms of the sacred, from the excesses of the medieval inquisitors to the Puritan theocracies of 17th century Britain and Massachusetts to the mid-20th century Roman Catholic teaching that attendance at weekly mass is a condition of salvation. Which brings me to my second point. To the extent that Christianity has been enacted as a new form of the false sacred, I would say that increasing cultural difficulty in taking it seriously represents a development that is, from a Christian point of view, both to be expected 
and welcomed. I'll say that again. To the extent that Christianity has been enacted as a new form of the false sacred, then I would say that increasing cultural difficulty in taking it seriously represents a development that is, from a Christian point of view, both to be expected and welcomed. Modern secularism, though philosophically based in the European Enlightenment, may also be understood as an outworking of the gospel, unmasking a form of Christianity that is insufficiently converted to the way of Christ. It's in this sense that the Carmelite Ruth Burroughs has written, we should therefore welcome what is known as secularization. In itself, it is right, something God wants. It is a purification, a dark night of religion, which allows a real and living faith to emerge. In other words, contemporary secularism even when it's aggressively or hostilely expressed, may be understood as a reaction to and ultimately as a purification of idolatry. And I take it that it's in this context we can understand Bonhoeffer's appeal to the necessity of religionless or this-worldly Christianity. And yet, and this is my third point, having acknowledged all this, what happens when not only false, punitive and exclusivist, exclusivist conceptions of God are given up, but any conception of God at all? When liberation from false religiosity turns in, into a wholesale cultural inability to take seriously any sense of human life as answerable or responsive to another with a capital A. Whereas in the Christian vision, our secular age is ultimately answerable to something beyond it, many modern Westerners believe there is no world but this one no transcendent reality, no anticipated future to which the present time is answerable. Charles Taylor describes the situation of the contemporary West as one where the goal of human life for masses of people is understood entirely in this-worldly or humanistic terms. This is the crucial link, he says, between secularity and a self-sufficing humanism. And it's this that constitutes the real crisis of the church and of Christian identity, this self-sufficing humanism. So where does all this leave us? I said earlier that I wanted to complexify our discussion of contemporary secularism so as to help us clarify more of what's at stake as we reflect on the question of a contemplative Christianity for our time. 
In the last part of this talk, I want to suggest some touchstones that emerge for me in the light of our exploration so far and that will shape where we go from here. It's not secularity per se, but self-sufficing humanism that's the real issue for Christian faith. At least that's my take on the argument of the previous section. Bonhoeffer seems to skirt dangerously close at times to, to collapsing that distinction, alighting that distinction. Our coming of age, he writes, leads us to a true recognition of our situation before God. God would have us know that we must live as human beings who manage our lives without him. God would have us know we must live as human beings who manage our lives without him. Well, this sounds at first reading like the capitulation or like a capitulation to the terms set by the world, the reduction of faith to humanism. <laughs> but in its context, it's clear that Bonhoeffer is groping for a way of articulating the direction of Christianity's continuance and renewal, not by retreating from, but by faithfully undergoing the secularizing dynamic. <coughs> Certainly he insists that his notion of this worldly Christianity doesn't mean, and this is a quote, the shallow and banal this-worldliness of the enlightened, the busy, the comfortable, or the lascivious. <laughs> Instead, what he means by this-worldly Christianity is that it involves, it's, it's the recognition that only by living completely in this world, living unreservedly in life's duties, problems, successes and failures, experiences and perplexities that we learn to have faith. He's insisting, in other words, that the life of faith is not separate from the life of the world, and its aim is not to make you a religious or spiritual person. The point is simply to become truly human. And yet the, the irony is that this is precisely what a self-sufficing humanism cannot enable. For Bonhoeffer, it's only in encounter with God that our human being is transfigured and realised. So in other words, he's, he's trying to move us away from thinking that the point of Christianity is to make you a, a, a religious person. The point is to make you a human being. But the irony is that the only way you become a human being is in relationship to God, to that transfiguring relationship. You can't get there just by self-sufficient self humanism. That's the claim. And in all this, it seems to me that, that Bonhoeffer is wrestling with a paradox close to the heart of Christian faith. On the one hand, our tradition proclaims that there is something essentially 
self-effacing, self-emptying. And the word we use is kenosis, self-emptying, something kenotic about God. God doesn't compete for place in the world. God is never seeking to displace our createdness in order to win for God's self a space in the world, says Rowan Williams. And this means that faith can never be a matter of securing a territory within the world over against some alternative space of human action and aspiration. It's about the transformation of action. It's not the displacing of our human action. And whenever human religiosity sets up God as a power who's competing for space in the world, we can be sure that this God is an idol. In short, Christianity can never be about securing itself over against the world, over against other traditions. And there is a sense in which when it's being truly itself, it's always on the brink of disappearing, <laughs> of looking like it's not there. At the same time, however, faith proclaims that the reality we call God is and is actively working in and through the world to affect reconciliation, love, hope, the consummation of creation itself. God may be no thing, not an item competing for space in the universe. But God is nevertheless present in and to all things, calling, inviting recognition and response. Faith is nothing other than the recognition of one who is so not in rivalry with the world, so authentically self-effaced, that presence may be mistaken for absence, self-giving for non-existence. And on this account, it's mature this worldly apprehension of this truth that matters profoundly for the future of Christianity and the life of the world. Well, I'm conscious that I haven't yet offered much sense of what this looks like in practice, how human being is in fact transfigured by faith, or what a community shaped by this faith will look like. But what I've hoped to do this morning is to say something about how God, as imagined in the Christian tradition, is related non-anxiously and freely to the life of the world. And how faith in this God is concerned not primarily with a religious subculture, but with the whole of life. And what I've also hoped to make very clear is that my interest in the Christianity of our contemplative tradition is not an interest in the revival 
or shoring up of our team. It's not about the attempted reassertion of cultural dominance or rivalry between our tradition and others. Rather, it's to do with the sense that there is an important but difficult to articulate possibility being neglected by our contemporary age and perhaps even at risk of being lost. A possibility that's worth attending to and seeking to re-articulate and inhabit. We can't go back. We can only undergo the collapse of the form of Christendom we have known, understanding it as part of its purification. But that doesn't mean we don't seek to remember and be part of the revitalising of the authentic inheritance of our faith. At issue really is Bonhoeffer's question, the question of whether Jesus Christ has any kind of claim on a world that has come of age. And it's to the exploration of this question that will turn this afternoon. <laughs>